0: Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Uh, this is episode two of my Eastport, Maine series. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go back and listen to the previous episode with Bill Johnson. It was a good one. Uh, for this one, I talked with Janice Wright Cheney. She is a Canadian artist who had an exhibit up in Eastport, Maine while I was visiting there. And uh, we, we talk about that exhibit in this episode. I, I went there with um our hosts uh in eastport bill johnson and and mary anderson as as well as their sons alex and ben whom i traveled there with uh, as well as my wife we went to this exhibit and i was i was very struck by it uh wanted to talk with with janice and she was nice enough to agree to sit down with me she she hosted me at her little artist's residence in eastport uh, we chatted about her life and her art, and it was, it was a really great talk, so I, I hope you enjoy it. Um, as I mentioned, if you want to go back and check out previous episodes, including the one with Bill Johnson, you can check it out on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or on my website, nicholaspatiak.com. Uh, you can also leave a review of the podcast. I would appreciate it. You could do that on iTunes. I think you could do it on Stitcher too. And if you want to contact me, you can do so on Twitter. I am at npatiak. Uh, thanks as always to Alex Johnson for the "I'll Be Damned" cover art and to Matt Pickett for the theme song. So here it is. Enjoy my conversation with Janice Wright Cheney. <laughs>
1: came in last night did I give you any preamble you did mm-hmm. okay you talked to me I, a little bit because I tried mm-hmm. to like sort of like catch people in the ring just so they'll feel comfortable what yeah. they're doing so good I wasn't sure if I caught you or not you <laughs> did yeah and I read
0: your little your pamphlet mm-hmm. thing which was great okay thank you I assume you had a hand in producing that or or you produced producing a little it bit yes yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: the tides institute mostly but yeah I, okay I, I was able to be part of that yeah great so
0: yeah. Uh, do you mind if we just start off by talking about Sardinia not at all okay so yeah. first of all congratulations that was great it was it was really good Thank we, you so we much. all really enjoyed it I came with I think four other people and we, we all really enjoyed mm-hmm. it so can you talk a little bit about what what inspired it and and how it came to be and how you created it
1: if I could I'll go I'll have to um, explain to you um, my host organization here the Tides Institute and Museum of Art in Eastport, Maine, and mm-hmm. this is a, an organization that I've worked with a couple of times. They have a museum or gallery here in Eastport, and some other other part aspects of their work include um, hosting residencies, um, music events, and there are sort of different programs running out of the Tides Institute. So I've worked with these, these guys before, and I was invited to do a residency this summer. So a year ago, I had a look at this old church in Eastport, Maine, that the, the Tides Institute had acquired. It was in ruin and they were about to begin some restoration on the building and um, they showed me the space and I was really in awe of the building and had an idea that I could work in the space in a new way and because the ceiling is, it has a beautiful vaulted curved um, shape, I th- instantly thought about projecting onto that ceiling and how you could animate that whole space somehow but really I don't um, have a lot of experience working in video or projection I just admire that kind of work I find it can be very moving and I thought this would be a great challenge for me I could do something in here so I um, thought about it for a while usually in my practice I'm interested in stories about humans and animals non-human animals so I'll look for a creature that i can research and and um portray somehow like how like so just to say the logical thing for me to deal with in eastport are sardines because the the sardine is the the story of eastport it's the lifeblood of this little community and so i think those are those to me weren't struggles like i saw the church wanted to do something the obvious thing was to make it about sardines. so I so I researched, read about sardines, thought about things for a while. Um, I like to make, I want to have some aspect that was handmade. So I made sardines too. So I sort of got busy making sardines um, that are hanging in the nets yeah. that are up in the balcony of the church. So, and then thinking, and it was just, I guess, I don't know if I'm answering your question well or not. I'm sort yeah, of like to yeah. exp- explain to you that there are various components mm-hmm. and they all kind of developed in a sort of parallel fashion, each one sort of coming together till finally I arrived here a month ago mm-hmm. and the church was actually still under a great sort of a construction zone in there so I could only come in at night and sort of experiment a little bit oh wow because there was like scaffolding and carpenters and plasterers <laughs> and, and uh, you know people in there with hard hats on all day and <laughs> dust. So I couldn't begin to actually put the work up yet. But I would go in um, when it got dark and the the, the uh, workers were gone, and play a little bit with the lighting, and then sort of pack it all up and and uh, scurry away. So then, about two weeks ago, the restoration was done and I began putting things in in place, and then then it was time to start playing with the projections and making decisions about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, it's a little bit of, of uh, YouTube footage oh, okay. that. Um, uh, I had some I had quite a bit of help uh, with the aspects of the work that aren't my forte. so I s- sort of had fun turning to people who I thought might enjoy the cre- a creative exercise um, like this. So my son is key here. Um, he is um, a student of music and I asked him if he wanted to do some sound work <clears throat> excuse me. Is I wanted to have some some ambient sound in the church. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful acoustics in there, right? So, yeah, yeah. So he and a friend of his, and these are the people that are acknowledged on the little program too. They uh, created a sound piece, and then actually another friend of my son's, who's studying film in New York, he did the video editing for me. Okay. Oh, and we were in great like in sort of contact, looking at samples. You know, yes, no, more contrast you know, loop that with this, overlay, like, so, he, he came up with something really wonderful, um, but he would show me pieces along the way, and, but I, you know, sort of let him run with it, too, so, so, they're all really happy, too. Now, Ryan, who's in New York, hasn't seen, hasn't seen the full thing yet. Yeah. He's heard the music, and he knows what he did, but, um, my son and his, the other friend, Charlie, who did the sound piece they've been they, they came to see it oh, good. yes and they're really excited so good. so that's nice it's was, it was nice to work with those guys so can you tell me a bit a
0: bit about the kind of the philosophy behind it and what what it is that you're exploring and trying to certainly say?
1: yes yes so the title of the work is sardinia
0: mm-hmm.
1: in my research very straightforward actually Oh wait um it's this is straight from wikipedia <laughs> the um sardine takes its name from the island off the coast of italy Sardinia, where this you know this fish was abundant at, um, in, through history, and it's um, a small herring that is very popular um, in the diet of in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. people. And as it turns out, we use the word sardine uh, to describe a small fish in the herring family, but there's actually, I think, as many as seventeen different species of herring around the world wow. the small versions of which are caught and called sardines so the one in um, I'm just referring here to, to an image, this is the specific um, east coast sardine mm-hmm. Atlantic herring is the name of this fish that was um, caught here off the coast of, of uh, in, uh, in Maine so Sardinia to me conjures up that island but also I've thought Of it as a mythical place Uh, old world this idea of um, a time where there was uh, abundance and that so I started to work with that as a concept that I could conjure up um, by using this projection creating the sculptural uh, components and so on and having the viewer coming to this space what you experience is like this Something that once was, mm-hmm. and that to me, there, it's about the absence of the sardines too, without being too heavy about that, but that is what, what the work is about. It's about the loss too. Yeah. And is that a theme that you've explored before? Recently, I realized, in fact, as I was preparing my slide talk uh, to for the um, residency project here in Eastport, I realized that the last kind of three or four uh, series that I've worked on have been really about the absence of the animal, rather than the presence. Yeah. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I think that it signifies our time, the time that we're living in, and um, yeah, that the loss of different species due to our own doing is something that I think we're we're coming to terms with, or we're mm-hmm. having to face.
0: And that seems to be pretty personal to you. So how did that start? Is that part of your upbringing?
1: Interesting. Um, sure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to I don't know how to how to link that to my upbringing. I didn't study biology. I just I do have always loved animals. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm interested in our relationship with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, in areas where we may have some conflict or um some tension in our relationship with nature i'm interested in that so then i'll zoom in sometimes on a particular animal and not only learn about that animal but how have we dealt with that animal Mm -hmm. so those projects have kind of brought me to the present and more increasingly about how we have not dealt well with that animal i suppose Yeah. yeah So have you always been
0: artistic? Is this something you always knew was in you and you wanted to do?
1: I guess so. I mean, I'm sort of, you know, well into my mid-career at this point and And, uh, yeah, I started out as um, a painter. I, I studied fine arts at university and majored in painting. But and then where s- was that? At Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. Okay. And is that around where you grew up as it well? It is, okay. yeah. It's in the same province that I grew up in. Okay. Yeah. And I painted for a while, didn't do too badly at that. And then I sort of transitioned into making, I loosely call textile based sculpture. Sometimes when it's just a way to sort of like reference some of the materials that I use because there are um, elements of, um, you know, sort of felt or wool. I I tend to learn different techniques as I need to, to, Mm -hmm. to inform each project. So I don't necessarily stick with any material, each project sort of will require sometimes new new explorations or new ways of working. So, I was going to tell you about uh, I guess the one of the first projects. I'm looping back on something you just mentioned about mm-hmm. working with loss, mm-hmm. the absence. Uh, in 2014, I went to Banff, uh, the the center uh, for Banff Center of Arts in uh, Banff, Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard of that, and Mm -hmm. um, did a residency there, and I was working with a curator, and we did a project at a little museum called the Banff Park Museum, and we did research ahead of time. In fact, I realized that my project here, Sardinia in Eastport, Maine, has a parallel in its approach to the project I did in Banff, Um, because I did research ahead of time, thought about what I wanted to work on, and at the Banff Park Museum, they used to have a zoo, and in the zoo, there was a polar bear. Hmm. And the, that museum was shut down, I think, in 1938 or something like that. I'd have to look that up. But, or, sorry, the zoo was closed too, and the animals were taken to the Calgary Zoo around that time. But the star attraction of the old Banff Park Museum Zoo was this polar bear named Buddy. And we sort of became interested in, you know, the story of that bear, that very particular animal. And then the work that I did there was an elegy to that bear. It was, I created, I explained it as, and I used the word conjure, which I'm going to use again now, too, in the Sardinia piece. It's the idea of, like, recreating the animal. But it, to me, it, I was making the ghost of Buddy. And I made I made the work by little components. I crocheted snowflakes, the kind that, you know, maybe you've seen hanging on Christmas trees that mm-hmm. your grandmother or your aunts might make or something. Yeah. So there's a sort of a familiarity with that little crocheted shape. And then um, I hung them in, so they're suspended in space to create the silhouette of the bear. Hmm. So it's sort of made up of this sort of hanging things. And there's also some crystals involved and in suspended as well, which sort of like create a sort of nice light and and sort of a ethereal presence, and the work was shown first at the at the, in the little a little room at the Banff Park Museum that we was darkened, and then the bear was softly lit, so it had a lovely, ghostly presence, but it was also kind of a a haunting work, yeah. you know, was uh, um, because of the of what it's about. The title of the work is Spectre, which can refer to both. Um, ghost mm-hmm. or spectacle—you know, thinking about zoo animals and how they're treated—all yeah. these things. I know I sort of tend to have a lot of like layers at work at any yeah. at any time. So I was describing that to you because maybe it'll I help you understand the Sardinia work too. Mm-hmm. It's I think um, conjuring this—the idea of um, recreating something that has been lost has has become something that I've been doing since that work. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So how, um, could you take me through, if you're comfortable with it, your, maybe your psychological connection to this? How did you get from painting at university to, into this sort of, the, the textiles, you know, these, these uh, sculptures, into the, these themes? How did you come to these themes, do you think? Hmm. The themes of, of loss and our, our connection to these, hmm. to nature?
1: Where to begin on that one? Wow, how long do we have here? we so... as long as you want. <laughs> um, okay, so first the transition from painting to sculpture and textile-based material came from um, a connection that I felt to materials that reference women's history in the arts. So that the uh, textile-based materials are um, meaningful because there's a lot of the the history of the way women make things so that's a sort of a feminist gesture and acknowledgement and i'm not the only one you know mm-hmm. who's who's working like that and in fact i'm you know honoring the work of of um women artists before me who have made that transition and taken up the meaning of those materials today in contemporary art practice so many artists are using whatever they want to make work which is wonderful mm-hmm. and so that opens up so many possibilities. So transitioning away from painting, um, it started out sort of being a thoughtful, conscious choice um, to use another language Mm -hmm. to express my ideas. But today, you know, when I go and look at contemporary work, when I get to travel and go to museums, it's just so... I, I get really excited by the possibilities of things that people are using mm-hmm. to make work with, even including like recycled materials and just repurposing things. I find that <clears throat> fascinating and... and <clears throat> sorry, I'm going to have to... I yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> haven't talked enough yet this morning. <laughs> <laughs> mm.
0: So before you go on, I'm interested in something you just said. You felt like you wanted to express yourself, paraphrasing you maybe wanted to express yourself a little bit further or more completely with these other materials as opposed to painting. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like
1: you weren't getting across with paint what you wanted to? Probably. And yeah. the world, like I think I'm a, I was an okay painter, <laughs> but um, I I feel like yeah, I couldn't do everything I wanted to do. And one of the things, like as I transitioned from painting to uh, textile-based material, I actually did a lot of embroidery wow. and in a way embroidery is another way of painting and drawing yeah. because you're working on a surface um, <laughs> you're making you know imagery yeah. and it actually works really well for very particular uh, kinds of illustrations in fact I did a lot of work about insects and you can embroider insects like so nicely and it was very, that was very satisfying to me because mm-hmm. you can make their little bodies and their little antennae and legs and so on, in a way that I couldn't do with, to my satisfaction, yes. with with um, with drawing and painting materials. So I that was meaningful to me. That yeah. was like a key thing I think in transitioning into um, into the kind of work I do now. And I also liked. I started also making three dimensional animals or or um, versions. Of the creatures I was working on and I liked that as well I thought that was also a sig- significant transition because rather than just making the image of something I could make the thing itself yeah. you see what I mean yeah. and I'm very also interested in scale all of the things that I work on whether they're insects rats grizzly bears um, coyotes cougars all things that I've made and yeah, I use taxidermy forms and so on I'm really uh, kind of uh, obsessed with making the animal in accurate scale because I feel like our relationship to it in our own bodies is is very much determined by the size of the creature sure. and how how many they are or how many there are of them. So, yeah. So switching to, to a three-dimensional way of working was good for me too because you can sort of tap into even more in terms of how our responses to certain animals are kind of embedded in us. Mm-hmm. I think it's physical. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm curious when you when you have an idea for for a project, do you how does that start? Does it germinate with here's what I want to say mm. and then you figure out how to say it or do mm. you have kind of an image of you know, like you, you sort of went into this with Sardinia, you, where mm. you saw the space and you, you know, the the history of the town and everything. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm curious. You know, you you how much does the idea inform the form versus, I guess, the other way around?
1: Yeah, it varies. Probably, um, I read and I pay attention to stories in the media about creatures that are like aspects of. Like I was talking about boundaries and ways that we interact with animals, that are where there's problems, problematic um, relationships. So I'll pay attention to something like a visit to some place might trigger a new, a new idea or new story. I obsessively, I'm pointing to my moleskin notebook here mm-hmm. on the desk that we were sitting. Um, I obsessively write notes to myself about things that I come across or ideas that might turn into future projects. And I, I, I would say in the creative process. There's a lot of kind of crankiness and worry, you know, like you worry, like the like the the um, the expression of um, worrying something, like fussing with it. Mm -hmm. I will look through my notebooks and realize I've been worrying the same idea for a period of time, and that's sort of like the wheels are working away at what is I want to say about it, how is it going to come out. So we are so what i think I think most of the work start with the idea and then the research, and then the material, okay, yeah, uh, at every stage, you know lots of uh decisions and 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 more cranky <laughs> more fussing, yeah, mm-hmm. and so uh sort
0: of shifting gears here you're you're here on a residency, I know you mentioned your residency in Banff yeah how long have you been doing those is that is I guess this is sort of maybe a gauche question but is that how you sustain yourself is that how you No,
1: I have a day job or you do. Okay. As, a, as an instructor at a college in my hometown in okay in Fritz, so the New Brunswick College of Craft and Design it's a, a little art college mm-hmm. and I teach in the foundation program there which is actually quite wonderful I've, I have a good job and it's um it's, you know fall and winter semester mm-hmm. at the college So that's how I pay the bills. Yeah, and uh, it's great because I'm working with students. I'm really in an environment that's very stimulating to me. I actually teach art history too, so I'm always like thinking about you know the history of art and getting to talk, have great conversations, and and research too. So yeah, so that's my that's how I sustain myself. Mm -hmm. And then when the um, for a few years now, as the school year wraps up. I'm I've, I've got myself ready to go. You know, I'll have yeah. a project, maybe uh, some travel, some research, or a resi- like this is two years of doing residency, which has been it's really fun because you remove yourself from all the other, you know, things the <laughs> domestic, the garden, the yeah. the uh, uh all the other things you are when you're home and you get to come someplace and just be an artist, which yeah. is, you know, really satisfying. Yeah. That is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm also curious. Just last night I was as I was talking to you and setting up this interview mm-hmm. people were coming by and they were talking about how the work impacted them and it seemed to impact a lot of people really profoundly. So as you're creating something is that important to you how your work is coming across your the relationship of the work to the viewer is that something that that is important to you? Absolutely.
1: But sometimes I think I forget that th- that's going to happen because that's, yeah, and, and then it's really delightful and touching when mm-hmm. you get that back. I, I I've become very concerned and obsessed with the integrity of the work and that it, it has to work to my satisfaction. And um, so, you know, just really, fo- I really focus on that. So then you launch it and you just hope that it's okay, mm-hmm. but then, in in the case of Sardinia, for sure. I mean, it's only been shown four times. Every night, there are more and more people coming, and um, and then, yeah, then then I get back what other people are, what what the viewer brings to it, and then if they choose to share that, it's super. Um, wonderful it's pleasing for me to 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 hear what people say and then it also adds to my own understanding of what i did if that makes sense yeah. because i think the conversations are the key thing in a way like i think the work sometimes can just be the conduit to a greater understanding of everything
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so in in maybe that's why it works for me in my practice that I explore something I put it out there but then when people bring back what they have thought about it or been challenged how they've been challenged by it or whatever and share that with me it also continues to shape my idea of it as well and so then that and thus it's ever changing or evolving and accruing in meaning which is like it's pretty great That yeah. is, yeah yeah that's really that's that's actually very touching yeah.
0: <laughs> um are you you mentioned you've, you've got your notebook and you've been exploring sort of accidentally this specific theme of uh, I guess loss in nature and the way that that humans have interacted with it yeah do you see that evolving and and continuing or do you have you noticed your focus sort of
1: shifting away towards something else good question I I don't think I'm going to let this one go because I think it's the it's the I I think artists have a responsibility to explore those those areas right now. Um so it's hard it's yeah, I don't think I can turn or, turn away from it yet. Um I have about like 3 or 4 little sort of sculpture projects underway. Um so we'll see how it comes out, but I don't have another I haven't picked another big work yet, mm-hmm. so we'll see. We'll see where Sardinia goes. I would also, I'm, I haven't ruled out showing that work someplace else. It was very much designed to be shown here in mm-hmm. Eastport with this particular church, the sardines, yeah. everything. Um, I reread Cannery Row just mm-hmm. before um, showing, showing the or getting the work together here, and uh, that, that was actually quite influential too. So I'll just mention that for a second too, <laughs> if you don't mind, because yeah. Steinbeck was way ahead of his time in terms of the way he thought about nature and the complete picture and he had his friend uh, Ed Ricketts for whom the character Doc in Cannery Row is based is based upon and together with Ruth Ricketts they went to uh, you know explore tide pools and they talked and thought about the interconnectedness of nature which comes out in Steinbeck's writing and it's really profound today to, to you know, reread that and think about Steinbeck's view about um, just the layers. And he saw things very completely. In fact, I read a little bit of of this the other day uh, at the church when my, the opening night, but Steinbeck, there's these lovely passages where he looks into a tidal pool and sees the universe. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I I was really um, excited that in my, when my sardines swim across the ceiling, they look like stars. I don't know they if you do. were thinking yeah. about that, but yeah. yeah, and that was exciting to me that there was a little bit of that kind of going on too. So I'm interested in how how everything is connected, and I think we are we have to be increasingly conscious of that in all of our actions. So without standing too like preaching or you know <laughs> heavy handed about that, but I feel like I feel like we're we're starting to really realize that so like new work i'm thinking about mushrooms Mm. because mushrooms are actually really really important to the uh, health of our forests and biologists are just really on the brink of learning way more than we ever thought about this humble humble little um not even you know a mushroom is a fungus that's not even a plant or animal it's got its own whole thing going Mm. on and it's really important to the health of trees and forests. And I'm interested in wilderness and the health of old growth, growth forests and the concept of wilderness. So who knows? I don't know. I guess I'm sort of throwing out a bunch of things there that I'm going to keep working on. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah.
0: I mean, wilderness is a theme that, mm. you, that you've gone back to. And I, I think I sort of mentioned this before, and then I think I abandoned the line of questioning, so that's my fault. Mm. Uh, as you were growing up, was it sort of in the wilderness? You, were you kind of like a woodsy... A woodsy kid?
1: Hmm. Um, I grew up in a little city. My family has a camp. We call it camp, cabin, Hmm. Hmm. um, in the woods on the, um, the Miramichi River. And so sure, I grew up, um, spending summer holidays in, uh, in fact, it's still that, that camp is still in my family and going there this weekend for the, for the holiday (laughs) weekend. Um, yeah I think so, but not maybe as much as some people like you know i think I think it's come to be more more meaningful to me um as I've just learned more about about wilderness mm-hmm. but for sure i mean i am you know i did i did really um love the you know opportunities to be to have that as a kid for sure it's mm-hmm. not without meaning, yeah. also just taking advantage of different places when you travel to just to go hiking or just be, be in, in the forest has really become more and more important to me.
0: Hmm. So it seems I'm sort of getting like snapshots of, of your process mm-hmm. here, and of I guess the germination of things, and it, it has to do with uh, being in tune with the wilderness, with with reading and researching. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you do that, that really makes allows you to keep yourself open to the world into new ideas Uh, how does how do you keep yourself curious
1: intellectually curious and open wow um i think it's just part of who i am so every day just being open like i think you already said it and just (laughs) sort of being open being curious um following up on things when you hear them making notes and going i need to know more about that um travel for sure like making you see what, you know, other places, that, how, 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 um, history of other cities, and then, then when you come home, and then a sense of home is important too, but I think that's shaped by going away from home sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: That's fascinating, the, I guess the sort of dichotomy, home versus Versus away is is analogous in some ways or, mm. or parallel in some ways to the idea of the ideas of of scarcity and plenty that you explored with Sardinia mm-hmm. and the, and the ideas of disappearing uh, wilderness and, and sort of endangered uh, endangeredness in the wilderness. That's kind of a that's a fun dichotomy that seems to run mm. run through your your work and your passions.
1: I guess now that you mention it, I do I do I do like to like determine um, spaces or like. I sometimes talk about the way I have dealt with the practice as having like these um, poles, and so I'll describe one for you. See if this makes sense in terms mm-hmm. of way you're setting up, um, yeah, like home and away, and and, the, and um, scarcity and plenty. Another one that I've played with is um, the museum as a space. I love museums. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also aware of certain aspects of the museum. You know, the museum has a certain authority, hmm. and it's also safe. So especially museums of natural history, which I love, I'm also conscious of how when we go into those places, we accept a certain kind of nature, like laid out, tidy, pinned down, yeah. labeled, um, all of those things. It's For some people, that's their main way of experiencing nature is in a museum. Yeah. Um, so, so the museum is for me one end of, of uh, a spectrum, and the, I suppose the opposite I would propose would be wilderness, like real wilderness, where nature is wild, uncontrollable, sometimes dirty, sometimes dangerous, all kinds of things that we can't, um, we, we admire, but we're all, it's also like beyond our control. So I'm interested in wilderness as a space and all the things it represents. And then somewhere in between those two sort of, you know, clearly defined uh, ends of the pole are all kinds of other areas where we interact with nature. And a place of the zoo there in the middle, for mm-hmm. sure. Talk Sort of looping back on the talk about Buddy the polar bear mm-hmm. and thinking about you know the experience of the zoo and what people go to zoos to see wild animals but the animals in zoos are denied the ability to be wild they're just on display living out their lives and that's problematic i think it's it's complicated um and then and there's all kinds of other spaces in there too i think on um, so i think you're right i think i i think it works for me to sort of like set things up that are sort of in opposition and then Explore the areas in between them, where things get a little complicated or interesting. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You've got a rat sitting <laughs> next to me that uh-huh. you said is made out of old fur coats. That's right. Yep. This this um, little specimen is one of many. I did a series, a body of work I call "Cellar," and in which I explored our relationship with. Um, as I mentioned, in, I'm interested in animals. Um, with whom we have fractious or uh, uh, unpleasant uh, connotations or relationships. So I did a body of work about rats. Rats, I realize, are very loaded with, f- with meaning, mm-hmm. uh, a very um, layered topic. So And I think about... I came to rats through do, doing some work uh, uh, on insects, and I was mentioning that as well. And the idea that um, we have classified certain animals into a group that we call vermin, which I think is a socially constructed idea that we decide some animals are unwanted and undesirable, and we go to great lengths to keep those animals away from our spaces. In and, and, so, and for good reason. I'm not trying to pretend that rats are a good idea or that, or, and so on, and they are uh, uh, problematic in terms of uh, disease and, and, uh, and, and filth. But interestingly, we start unpacking that and thinking about the rat, the Norway rat, the ubiquitous rat of, of um, the sort of global inhabitant. The Norway rat came with Europeans to the New World and uh, it arrived in the port cities and then basically colonized uh, you know North America and, and pretty much in South America and all other aspects of the world, sometimes replacing the indigenous species that were there, mm. and thriving. So, I find it really interesting that the rat is you know it's problematic, and it and it is um, the numbers of rats in certain cities of the world are certainly it's you know a a, a worry or it's a it's a something that mun- municipalities have to deal with. But it's really interesting that. We hate them so much, like they're so loathed um, for all these things they represent. But they, I, I came to think that the rat. We hate rats because they signify our excess, and they, and they, you know, they feed on our garbage and our waste, and they. When we see them, it reminds us of all the things that we don't want to think about. Mm. So I think it's really loaded. It's really like a fun way to sort of explore something, and I, I. Um, I understand that, like, when people see my rat, there's a little bit of repulsion, which I'm playing with. It looks pretty rat-like. Thank you, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like what I think is the essential rat body, which is a little, like, of a hump back, Mm -hmm. and that the tail, which is sort of repulsive, and then, you know, the little sort of face with whiskers. Anyway, I made hundreds of these creatures out of old fur coats, which I also thought was kind of fun and interesting, to play with the material Mm -hmm. fur associated with luxury, wealth, um, desire, um, you know, sort of something that represents the other end of the spectrum of, you know, uh, the treatment of an animal and valuing an animal uh, for all those, like mink and beaver, muskrat, all the kinds of furs, uh, the, the, the animals that furs come from, trapped or raised, are actually rodents, not unlike rats. But now, anyway, sort of so many like interesting. <laughs> I think areas of of interesting contradiction and overlap between, you know, the the creature of the rat and then the other animals for which the the fur is taken from to make fur coats. So I collect these fur coats. People have a problematic relationship with fur. A lot of a lot of people have inherited fur from their grandmothers mm-hmm. or their aunts, and they. Um, they don't know what to do with it. Not everybody wants to wear fur yeah. right now, and uh, I understand that. So it, it seemed to be like I would absolve them of their, mm-hmm. their the weight of having to own fur, and they would give me their coats, and and, the, and then knowing that I was making turning it into an art project, so that was kind of fun. Yeah. So um, I collected a lot of fur, and then I, I um, described uh, how this is sort of a fun little parallel to I was like, you have to skin the coat, to oh, take okay. out the lining, and sort of as if it's almost like I'm now mimicking the process um, of um, preparing an animal mm-hmm. for for uh, the pelt of an animal, but reversing it, turning it into a rat, turning the coat back into an animal. I guess so. Mm-hmm. That was all very things. I got I had a lot of time to think about because <laughs> I made so many rats, and I thought about all this sort of fun little connections or contradictions that were that were at play. So, then I, just, so I took my rats and put them in the um, gallery setting and made like sort of an environment. So again, this would relate to Sardinia as well, I think, except without the components of a video or sound. But the viewer would come right into this space, and I had these old cage-like structures, and the rats are in and out of the cages also some sort of ruined space like some old doors and windows and but it's not a specific environment so did you when, you when you come down to the gallery and sort of a little bit dramatic lighting soft lighting with shadows and you don't know if you're in like an abandoned fur farm uh laboratory um an old like an old warehouse or platform uh a shop or something people had all kinds of different um, responses to like what what kind of environment was suggested there, but the rats have taken over. there were like hundreds of them. you couldn't possibly count them and there was there was an interesting um, piece. Uh, in terms of the feedback and the conversations that I had about that work, too. Yeah, and that was in New York City? Well, I didn't get to show that work in New York. I wouldn't mind if you know anybody <laughs> <laughs> uh, at all. I I showed the work in uh, Fredericton, in my in my in the gallery in, in my city, the Beaverbrook Art Gallery, and then again at the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, which is in Halifax. And that was interesting because Halifax is a port city, hmm. and a lot of people in Halifax have rat stories or have lived with rats, so that was... That was great, and the, sh- and the show was quite well-received there, a very lively response. And then, very recently, I showed the work in uh, Lethbridge, Alberta. Hmm. Alberta claims probably the only, uh, I think, uh, territory in the world claims to... A rat free status. Wow. They go to great lengths to keep rats out of Alberta, which so I think is pretty interesting. In. So I brought some in, right? <laughs> I had to. Yeah. And had those conversations. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, um, for sure, um, cities where they have dealt with rats are really interest, of great interest to me. And my research uh, took me to New York to yeah, say so I wanted to see video, rats. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to go to the subway stations and, and look down there and, yeah. So is that... Did you go into the subway stations with a camera? And yes, say, oh, I did. Yeah, I totally pictures. did. Yeah, and I, I, I paid attention to, to... Sort of had some side conversations to sort of where are good spots. Yeah. You know, because it probably changes, but there's certain... On any given night, there are areas in New York where you can be guaranteed to see rats. So yeah. that's I, I sought out those areas. Oh, wow. Yeah. And did you find your relationship with rats changing
0: at this point? I mean, usually people see rats and they, Ooh, and yeah. they kind of run away. We I mean, was you're, running you're toward them. Taking That's toward, right. Yeah, taking
1: pictures. Yeah. Uh, I, had, mm-hmm. I admire them, I guess. Really? I, yeah, I do for their tenacity. And, they're, you know, they're part of the complete picture. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, back to this whole idea of everything being connected. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my, in, I have this great quote that um, comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson, actually. I'm mm-hmm. just going to share it with you. Yeah. Make sure I get it right here. It says something about magnificence. Where is it? Farther back. Evermore in the world is this marvelous balance of beauty and disgust, magnificence and rats. <laughs> Isn't that great? That is. It's, yeah. co- it's, it's sort of open. You can interpret it in different ways. But I feel to me it speaks to the, like, the complete picture. And rats are part of that.
0: Yeah. That's great. Do you have any other works that you want to talk about?
1: Um, do you see any here when I scroll through my images that you think you would like to ask well, me about? Well, I guess
0: there's, there's, the one, there's one of the photos that you showed of the, the cougar. Well, first of all, can you, is that a cougar that you said? Yes. Can you yes. talk
1: a little bit about that? Sure. Um, to contextualize that, I'll have to tell you a little bit about in eastern North America, the cougar has been um, extinct In essence, since um, the early part of the 20th century, probably,
0: Hmm.
1: and uh, sightings persist, but there's not a breeding population of cougars. So now, so you're in Chicago. So do you have Mm -hmm. cougars? Uh, Probably not. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, Hmm. because I think from Midwest, like from in Canadian uh, U.S. uh, maps, we see healthy populations of cougars on the west hmm. part of the country. In fact, they're problematic, right? Hmm. In some areas, like in, in cities in California and so on, and sometimes in Canadian cities on the west coast, there'll be cougars are coming right into urban areas. Hmm. But in... Um, and then in the mid and then eastern sections, there are basically not cougars, but there are these random sightings. And that's really interesting to me. Like, people sometimes think they see cougars when they don't, and that's, <laughs> that's definitely the case. But sometimes they have seen a cougar. Yeah. That's now been proven. Like there are actually, in fact, this is Tennessee officials confirm first cougar sighting in 100 years, and that was a few months ago. And that I followed up on that story, and there are indeed two cougars in Tennessee right now. What? Like they're, they know this for sure, genetic. You know, they've done the work to mm-hmm. sort of prove. prove. So what, what I'm interested in is the role of photography, In that story because we believe what we see and we're always looking for evidence the photographic (laughs) evidence which it's hard to capture so thinking about that I thought well I am going to create again conjure Mm -hmm. the presence of the cougar Um, so what I did is I did it made a taxidermy form and I upholstered it in black velvet my cougar that's sort of because sometimes people claim the cougars they see are black, which is also really interesting. Yeah. Um, there are black cougars, panthers, same creature that would be melanistic. So that does that a black cougar exists, but they would, they wouldn't be very uh, common. But interestingly, many sightings are of black the black creature. So to me, it just added to the allure, the mystery, the exotic. Uh, presence of this animal so I took my cougar forms out into the woods and placed them um you know as if they're prowling through the underbrush or sort of like mysteriously like lurking in the trees or whatever then treated again now I'm going to tell you I had the help of my my other son um, who's a good photographer and he helped me he helped me with uh, with the technical aspects of this work and manipulating the images to look like old photographs. Yeah. So now I'm making two fakes. I'm faking the cougar, <laughs> and I'm faking uh, the photograph to look like a tintype, perhaps, or suggest something archival. So if you, if you see the series of work, it's sort of a little bit of a, like, what am I looking at? Is yeah. this, like, for real? And then, but if you start paying attention, you realize that you'll start to guess <laughs> that it's, that it isn't the real animal. But it might take you a few minutes to figure it out, so it's kind of fun. But, you know, so there's a playfulness. But to me also, there's a seriousness and a sadness to the work too. It's also an elegy to an animal that is disappearing or disappeared. Um, And I think our longing for that animal, longing for the wilderness that the animal represents. And our... um, yeah, our just our, sort of our relationship uh, to wilderness and um, what that means I think are all things I'm trying to play with. I'm not finished with this work either, I don't think. I think I'm, I think I'm going to make a, uh, a sculptural installation where I bring the forms back into a, a museum or gallery setting, but then I'm gonna try and recreate the photo in three dimensions. Oh, that's great. Yeah? You think? You, yeah. really, oh yeah, you really are playing between <laughs> those poles. You've got the, yeah, and you're,
0: you're exploring the space between wilderness and, and the museums. That's really cool. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, of mm-hmm. course. So I, th- I find this very funny. Does that mean that you just have this cougar kind of sitting somewhere? I do. Yeah. It's uh, wrapped in bubble wrap in oh, my okay. uh, s- my storage shed right now. You don't right just kind of like put it by your front door just in case any burglars <laughs> come in.
1: <laughs> I have startled people before who've uh, sort of looked in the window and seen, uh, yeah, Yeah, animal bodies laying in the
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then I also saw you've got uh, a bear made of little roses.
1: I do. These are some works that um, I did in 2012. They're very um, important works to me, very personal works too, actually, exploring themes of, um, uh, well, the work is called Widow, so that may give you some hint. And they have to do with uh, loss and grief, but also survival. So the, the the I think of it as one work, but what you're what what you're actually looking at here are two grizzly bear forms. Taxidermy again. Um, so I the and this is a ready made, I should explain that as well. I don't know if, how much you know about taxidermy. I don't know much. Well, you can look through a taxidermy catalog and you can Get any animal you want, like, and they're made out of foam, polyurethane mm-hmm. foam, and a true taxidermist can uh, shape a pelt that's brought to them by um, ordering the form, and then they might shape it to sort of fit a particular animal, whatever, and then they they cover it with their own techniques and so on to create a taxidermic mount. Gotcha. <clears throat> As an artist, um, and I'm one of many people who have been fooling, out, fooling around with taxidermy, it's like a ready-made sculptural form for us. So um, it's sort of a shortcut in a way, but it also references the history of display of animals back to the museum again, too, and uh, all those sort of things about, about, you can talk about hunting, you can talk about um, dioramas in museums, and trying to represent nature Um you know, for viewers. So anyway, taxidermy has a huge history, and I've read lots about it. I used the taxidermy form too in a, in the grizzly bears, and then uh, got to work on them in my own way. So what I did was covered the forms with velvet, and then so I, you can't, I don't know how well you can see that from the image, but you can see in the snout and in the and then in the paws of the bear. Tony, stop just just, uh, real quick. Sorry, sure. this is a really. Oh, it's a very loud. Uh, there's somebody mowing like, yeah. right
0: there. All right, so I think we can get back into this now that we have a. Yeah, sure, and we'll just wrap it up. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Okay, so you were talking about the the kind of the form, the taxidermy form, how it's like a shortcut. That's right. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So please continue.
1: So I, um, like many other artists, have taken advantage of this, of the availability of the taxidermy form for sculpture. So, and I call it a ready-made, so I can work, work on the animal form. And I, unlike a taxidermist, I'm covering it with something else. I'm not trying to use a pelt. In this case, I used velvet, um, which to me is sort of like a nice skin for the animal. So it's quite a bit of work, sort of making, sort of covering the entire form, in this case with red velvet. And then the, the work uh, is mm-hmm. also... Um, The bear is then covered with roses that I made out of uh, dyed felt, which is, oh, you probably know wool that's been um, agitated to create sort of cloth. And then each rose was dyed and and, and, um, felted and sewn to take its shape. And then hundreds and hundreds again of these things are made and then pinned Mm -hmm. right into the surface of the bear. So then, the bear takes a has a new coat. Mm -hmm. It has a coat of roses, and the idea was all the things that roses, I suppose, symbolize too. You know, love and um, and uh, loss and and beauty. I suppose it's kind of a bit of a magical creature in that it does. You know, you it's there's an impossibility to that but people seem very very touched by it. I've been very honored by the response that people have uh, to these works. And the idea in this case came to me It's less about research here and more about um, just in, um, my own experience and also triggered by... Um, I saw a dead bear on the side of the road when I was driving one day, and I just felt this incredible sadness came came over me and I'm anthropomorphizing here for sure but I was thinking about who loved that bear and who who's grieving for that bear so I made the bear that is that misses the bear if that makes sense so my bear is about about um, grief but also about about survival and strength hmm. That's
0: beautiful. Thank I you. I can understand why people re- respond to it. Um, I'm I'm glad that we got the chance to explore this, and thank you for sitting down and talking with me. So, can you tell everyone where we can find your work, where we can find you, how we can see what you're up to?
1: Certainly. So, um, my website is uh, www.janicewrightchaney. That's all one word. dot com. Guess that's the main thing. I don't do Facebook. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, I should probably. I miss out, I think, on things. Um, and um, uh, through my um, website, you can. There's a link to my email account. If anybody wants to connect with me or or uh, respond.
0: Okay. Great. Well, I'll also write that out on my website and everything. So. Thank uh, you. Yeah, that'll be that'll be out for everyone to to hopefully come and and connect with you and and explore your art because I think you're doing great things.
1: Thank you.